2: Before we begin, this episode contains strong language and discussions of rape and assault. Last time on 17 Years, the Andrew Malkinson
3: story. I've been struggling to find work. Nobody wants to employ someone with this kind of conviction.
4: We presented the Criminal Cases Review Commission with DNA Evidence.
3: This isn't the first time you've
2: been to the Court of Appeal.
3: Yeah. I've had so many knockbacks... I'm going to fight tooth and nail as long as I have to. And if it means fighting to the end of my days, then so be it.
4: The evidence that is now
5: available is so strong that he does have reason to hope.
2: One hot summer's day in 2003, in the early hours of the morning of July the 19th, a mother of two was raped and left for dead by a motorway embankment in Greater Manchester. Andrew Malkinson was convicted of the crime and sentenced to life in prison. He always maintained his innocence. Last Wednesday, three judges ruled that his conviction was no longer safe after DNA evidence implicated another man in the crime. Just after four o'clock, Andrew Malkinson walked out of the Court of Appeal in central London, flanked by his legal team. He wore a black T-shirt that read innocent and not the only one. The 57-year-old, with his now greying beard and glasses, walked up to a cluster of microphones and waited a moment.
4: Ready?
2: He then looked into the TV cameras and spoke.
3: I came to the police station in 2003 and told the officers I was innocent. They didn't believe me. I came to the Crown Court in Manchester in 2004 and told the jury I was innocent. They didn't believe me. I came to this appeal court in 2006 and told them I was innocent. They didn't believe me. I applied to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, which is supposed to investigate miscarriages of justice, and told them I was innocent. They didn't investigate and they didn't believe me, not once, but twice. Today we told this court I was innocent, and finally they listened.
2: You're listening to 17 Years, the Andrew Malkinson Story, a podcast brought to you by subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Will Rowe, the producer of the series. It's about how one man spent almost two decades in jail for a crime he's always said he didn't commit. Now, finally, the
3: state agrees. Bit of a long time coming, but it feels good to be recognised as an innocent man.
2: Today we'll examine one of the biggest miscarriages of justice in British legal history and ask, what's next for Andrew Malkinson? This is part eight, Innocent. I was one of the journalists outside of the Court of Appeal last week, with my microphone shoved next to all the others. Andy, as I know him, spoke for around nine minutes, To my left, a few feet away, was Emily Dugan, jotting down notes. Emily is the journalist who first worked on this story for the Sunday Times, and we made this podcast series together in 2021. She's since moved to another paper.
3: I am not a liar. I am not in denial. But I will tell you who is. Greater Manchester Police are liars, and they are in denial. Even after this judgement today, I predict we will see them denying responsibility for what happened.
2: Then Andy's mother, Tricia, stepped up. Visibly emotional, her statement was read by a member of the team at the legal charity who'd helped her son.
1: I am the proud mother of this brave, gentle, decent man. I have always known he did not do this horrible crime. Suddenly, in the public eye, I am no longer a deluded mother. My son is no longer a monster. But
2: Soon the cameras done... stopped rolling and the media scrum moved on. I stayed around for a while and caught up with Andy's lawyer, Emily Bolton, from the legal charity Appeal.
4: I
5: am furious. I am absolutely furious that it's taken this long for Andy Malkinson's wrongful conviction to be quashed by this court. There were opportunities for this to happen in the past where it should have happened. This is not a celebration of justice. Justice delayed is justice denied.
2: I can see you have a mixture of anger, frustration, and passion at the moment. And Andrew Malkinson has lived with this for 20 years. Going broader than Andrew, how many other Andrew Malkinsons do you worry that they might be out there?
5: So we've had about a th- over a 1,000 people apply to us for assistance. Obviously not all of those people are innocent, but nor is it the case that all of them are guilty. That's a myth that everybody in prison says they're innocent. That's absolute nonsense. And we sift through those cases very, very carefully with the limited resources we have, and we choose a handful of them for full representation, and Andy was one of those cases.
2: So you worry there are other Andrews out there?
5: There are definitely other Andrews out there. We represent a number of them.
2: It's worth just pausing a moment and getting an understanding of what has happened to Andy. He left prison in December 2020 after serving 17 years behind bars. He came out under strict life license rules and has lived under those for two and a half years. That meant he was on the sex offenders register under tight supervision from the police. Probation officers would keep an eye on him and he would have to explain his movements. In addition, he wasn't allowed to go abroad. None of that applies anymore. He really is a free man. So what exactly were the judges at the Court of Appeal looking at? Well, the main thing was DNA evidence. Back in 2004, when Andy was convicted, it was done on the basis of eyewitness identification. No forensic evidence ever linked him to the crime. The victim of the rape had picked him out at an ID parade, whilst two witnesses said they saw him nearby in the early hours of the morning. But Andy never matched key parts of the description the woman gave of her attacker. She'd said he had a smooth chest, whereas Andy had chest hair and tattoos. Also, the victim said she scratched the face of her attacker. But when police saw Andy the next day, there was no mark on his face this key bit of evidence got muddled and muddied in court. The judges at the Court of Appeal finally quashed Andy's conviction because DNA testing done last year showed that another man was implicated in this crime. The Court of Appeal judges also heard about what are called disclosure failures. The evidence of the two witnesses I mentioned a moment ago who said they saw Andy near the scene of the crime was crucial. The court, back in 2004, believed they were honest, but Greater Manchester Police did not disclose that they had a string of criminal convictions between them, and one was a known heroin addict. So Andy's defence team was completely unaware of these facts, and so were the jury. Andy, Hi,
3: Will. how are you? Yeah, I remember you. Yeah, good to see you. Good well, to see you. Yeah.
2: The next day, I went to Clerkenwell in central London to see Andy at his lawyer's office. Yeah.
3: Busy day yesterday. Yeah, but not. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <I'm> mad. <laughs> it's so mad. It's
2: so nice. Andy, do you mind leaning in a bit or just pulling the mic, pull mic towards you? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, that might be it's easier. Isn't it? Isn't it? And how are you today?
3: Today, I'm quite elated. A little tired, but I'm riding a wave. Yeah. Yeah. And how was yesterday? Talk to me about it. Uh, How was it? Uh, Very, very nerve-wracking. I was filled with anxiety. The judges wouldn't necessarily have come to the right decision. There's no guarantee of that. It's a pivotal moment. They're going to decide your life, aren't they? For the next however long my life is going to last. So, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm definitely past the halfway point. Definitely.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What was going through your mind when Lord Justice Holdroyd said...
3: Uh, We must keep Mr Malkinson waiting no longer to know the outcome of his appeal. Yeah, my heartbeat definitely increased then. Uh, for we are able to decide the outcome of the appeal. And I thought, he's got to have attorneys, he's got to. And then I was shaking, I was shaking. My very, very core of my, my body was shaking and then I was going, oh my God, oh my God.
0: Uh, having
3: considered for ourselves the <clears throat> new evidence and its effect, uh, we have uh, no doubt that the new evidence shows these convictions to be unsafe. Uh, it was really hard to, to deal with. Too much emotional overload, yeah.
2: I was also in court. In fact, I was sitting on the same wooden bench as Andy, just a few seats over. When the judges got up and left, his lawyer Emily turned round and hugged him. Andy then raised two hands towards the public gallery and his friends and supporters applauded. His mother, Tricia, was sitting two rows back, with tears in her eyes. Soon, Andy walked out of the court into the sunlight.
3: It was just an, a marvellous sight to see everybody outside smiling at me and embracing me. At every parole hearing I sat before a panel who shook their heads at me, considering me to be dangerous. And all that time, the real perpetrator, the real dangerous person, was free. Did you ever imagine that day would come? I fantasised about it, certainly, many, many times in prison.
2: In, when you were in jail? Yeah,
3: I'm in jail, yeah. So
2: you used to sit there and write your
3: yeah. that speech? Wow. Yeah. And it wasn't very as measured as it ended up being. A lot of it was just expletives. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which, that wouldn't have gone down very well at all, would it? <laughs> no, probably not. But, um...
2: How have the last 20 years been? How have you gone through that? I mean, there was 17 years in jail, but plus the three years to get to where we are today, sitting in front of me yeah. as a free man, yeah.
3: an innocent man. Yeah. But it's very hard to answer that question, Will, because um, I don't even know, really. I don't know. But the beginning was the very, very hardest. The first, say, I'm going to say five to ten years, and it never gets easy. It never gets, becomes normal. It's such an abnormal thing to happen.
2: This case has revealed the cruelest of twists. If Andy had admitted to the crime whilst he was in jail, it's very likely that he would have been released around a decade earlier, rather than in December of 2020. Convicted sexual offenders are heavily encouraged to do what's called a sex offender's treatment programme. It's designed to reduce re-offending and increase the chances of an early parole it naturally creates a horrible dilemma
3: for a wrongfully convicted inmate. It's been many days and hours and weeks and everything. Thinking, well, I would get out earlier, but um, it wouldn't work. It literally would get stuck in my throat, physically. Let's say it, Andy would tell us. I'd have to get up and say, fuck off. I'm not doing it. I'm innocent. It's not like you're admitting to shoplifting. It's like you've got to pretend... I went and strangled someone and raped them? Nah, no, fucking no chance.
2: During Andy's speech outside court last week, he took time to directly address the woman who was subject to this most brutal rape. The same woman who picked him out of the police ID parade back in 2003.
3: Sitting in my cell, I used to rack my brains as to how you could say you were so sure it was me when I knew it was not. I read all I could and learned about how fraught with risk the process of line-up identification is when someone has been subjected to trauma. I wondered if the police helped you to pick me. I am so sorry that you were attacked and brutalised that night by that man. I am not the person who attacked you. But what happened to me is not your fault. I'm so sorry if my fight for the truth, as I knew it to be, has caused you extra trauma. I'm so sorry that the system has let you down. It lets us both down.
2: There was obviously the the two victims on that night. That's you and her. Yeah. You're horribly sort of bound together by this tragedy of injustice, that that both of you have
3: suffered. Mm.
2: Would you ever consider
3: reaching out to her or meeting with her and speaking? Well, I wouldn't make any move that way. But if, if she was to try and communicate with me, I'd certainly consider it. But I don't know. I don't know.
2: Earlier in this series, we spoke with a woman called Jennifer Thompson, because... What happened to her has chilling similarities to this case. Back in 1984, as a 22 year old student, Jennifer was violently raped at her apartment in North Carolina in the United States. She identified a man called Ronald Cotton as her attacker. Cotton went to prison for life but was released 10 and a half years later when new DNA evidence revealed another man was the perpetrator. Jennifer has since founded a charity called Healing Justice that works with both survivors of violent crime and those mistakenly convicted. She's waived her right to anonymity and campaigns about how eyewitness identification procedures can be flawed. Now, in her mid-60s, she jumped on a call from her home, a small town in North Carolina. I started by asking her how she had felt back in 1995 when Ronald Cotton was officially cleared of all charges in her case.
5: I think my immediate reaction was not disbelief in the fact that I questioned the DNA. I think it was the disbelief that something like this could happen. And that was followed by an incredible amount of um, feeling guilty. But then I think it went into fear, like a lot of fear, because you don't know what this other person is feeling. You don't know what they're thinking, what their families are thinking. But very, very fast, the story got out there and the public very quickly wanted to blame me for what had happened to Ronald. So it was, it was terrifying, to be honest with you.
2: Through your work at, with your charity, you've met many people who've been wrongly convicted. What would your advice now be for Andrew Malkinson for his life?
5: Andy is really a unique individual. I think he'll do fine. It will take a long time. You cannot break people over and over again for 17 years and think that somehow all the pieces are still there because they're not. He's been broken, but he also knows that there's lots of people who care about him and who support him. And it's just a day-by-day process. It's just a day-by-day process. The
2: mistaken identification of Andy as the perpetrator in the police lineup was key to his conviction. So, should there be questions asked about how reliable that kind of evidence is when there's been a traumatic event like rape? After Ronald Cotton's conviction was quashed, Jennifer was interviewed for an American TV documentary called What Jennifer Saw.
5: It was really about eyewitness ID and how trauma and your memory, how they were related. I can remember listening to myself say that I know that Ronald is innocent, but I still see his face in my nightmares. And it hit me really hard because I thought to myself, but it's not Ronald. So why is Ronald's image still in my brain and my nightmares? And I needed to figure out a way to remove that. And the only way I knew to remove it would be to meet Him,
2: Ronald Cotton agreed. Two months later, Jennifer found herself face-to-face with the man she'd thought for many years was her rapist.
5: We were able to sit with each other and ask each other questions that we'd always wanted to know. I wanted to know where he really was that night because his alibi had been incorrect and he wanted to know why I believed it was him, why I thought it had been him, and questions that, you know, for 11 years we... We wanted to ask. And so we were able to kind of explore that with each other. I think what we really realized more than anything else was how we had both been incredibly and completely failed.
2: We can't speak with the victim of this awful crime that we now know that Andrew didn't commit. We don't know who she is. And for good reason, there's lifelong anonymity of victims of sexual offenses in this country. But would you have any advice for her now or could you offer her any advice?
5: Well, <clears throat> the biggest piece of advice that I would give to her if if I could would be to reach out to me. Healing Justice is the only nonprofit in the country, and we think probably in the world that works with both sides that get harmed in a wrongful conviction. But the other piece of advice I would give to her is to give herself all the space and the grace in the world to begin healing. And that never at any point in any of this has this been her fault. The system had a responsibility to provide justice for her after what happened to her and they failed her.
3: In
2: a moment, we'll look at how likely it is that Andy will receive compensation for his wrongful conviction. But first.
0: Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
4: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers.
1: Last year, Greater Manchester
2: Police arrested a man on suspicion of rape for the same crime Andy was convicted of. The 48-year-old can only be identified as Mr B. Last week, the Court of Appeal heard that Mr B's DNA was updated on the National Database in 2012, but only recent refined scientific testing linked the sample from the victim's clothing to him. He's been interviewed twice by police, and a file has been sent to the Crown Prosecution Service to consider whether to charge him. Just 31 minutes after Andy's conviction was quashed, Greater Manchester Police put out a statement from Assistant Chief Constable Sarah Jackson. Part of it's read here by a producer
5: we are truly sorry to Mr. Malkinson that he is the victim of such a grave miscarriage of justice in being convicted of a crime he did not commit and serving a 17-year custodial sentence. Whilst we hope this outcome gives him a long overdue sense of justice, we acknowledge that it does not return the years he has lost. I have offered to meet with him to personally deliver this apology.
2: They added...
5: The force has and will continue to fully cooperate with any further reviews of this case. An action will be taken if it's found that anything could have been done differently.
2: You've had extremely strong words for Greater Manchester Police. Mm. They've apologised. Do you accept it?
3: I've not even seen it and I don't care. It doesn't ring with any kind of integrity. Because, shall I say why? They've fought tooth and nail all the way. They've been dragged kicking and screaming. To apologise at, at the 11th minute of the 11th hour is faintly ridiculous. They have
2: offered to meet with you in person to apologise. Will you meet them? I don't want to answer that right now. The day after the court hearing, it's just too soon for you yeah. to process? Yeah, definitely. Too soon. Do you blame Greater Manchester Police for what happened to you?
3: Yes, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. They're to blame.
2: Everyone that I've spoken to will be thinking of damages, reparations, compensation. Mm -hmm. Is that something you want? You'll never get those 17
3: years back. No, they're gone forever. Of course I will pursue compensation. What else can I do? I'm not going to say forget about it. It's fine, you've destroyed my life. That That would be insane. And I think it should be punitive as well. They should be punished for that. And that, that should be added on to what they owe me. You know, do, do you know if that makes gonna, sense. It does
2: make sense. Do you know yeah. how you're going to pursue this?
3: I don't know. Um, it's too soon. It's too soon after the event. I think that's for the lawyers to work through.
2: I wanted to understand how Andy might go about getting a payout. But also, more broadly, how big a miscarriage of justice is this? So, I turned to someone who's across all things to do
6: with the law. I'm Jonathan Ames. I'm the legal editor of the Times newspaper. People
2: are talking about Andrew Malkinson's case being one of the biggest miscarriages of justice in British legal history.
6: Do you think that's fair? I think it certainly is one of the most significant in terms of an an individual case. There are other cases that have involved multiple claimants, but as far as one individual goes, this is certainly one of the most significant, if not the most significant.
2: We know Andrew Malkuson wants compensation. Who can he get that from? How does that work?
6: He would apply to the Ministry of Justice, which is the Whitehall ministry that is responsible for the justice system and the prisons. Right. And the government would take a decision on whether the facts in this specific case and the quashing of his case merits compensation. And
2: does the quashing of the conviction not show that?
6: Not immediately, right. uh, which may sound slightly odd, but they, uh, the way the, the laws, uh, the relatively recent laws, is, is drafted, it must be beyond reasonable doubt that he is innocent. The government would say that some convictions are quashed more on arguable technicalities, uh, procedural issues, etc., than a clear-cut, beyond-reasonable-doubt case of innocence.
2: What chance of success do you think he has from getting compensation from the Ministry of Justice?
6: From, pe- from lawyers I've spoken to, I should think he's got a very s- strong chance of obtaining compensation, not least of all that the forensic evidence that triggered the quashing of Malkinson's conviction is so strong. And secondly, there's been a rather significant public spotlight on Malkinson's case.
2: I've seen some stories written in papers on the radio about Andrew Malkerson might have to pay for his room and board. This idea that he may get compensation, but they might deduct the fact that in prison he was technically living rent free. It's a bizarre concept to me anyway.
6: Well, that is true. I mean, you're, you're right to say it's, it strikes people as bizarre, but it is the case that in some uh, circumstances when The government has paid, the ministry has paid compensation for convictions that have been quashed. They have clawed back room and board on the basis that they say, well, you know, pay for your meals, you've had a place to sleep. But in this case, from what I gather, again, from legal experts, I suspect that that would be unlikely.
2: We also know that Andrew Malkinson is extremely angry with how he feels he was treated by the greater Manchester police force. They were the force that investigated this crime. Is there a situation where he could sue them or get some money back from them?
6: Yes, he could bring a civil claim for uh, malicious prosecution, I think is the most likely. Whether he succeeds in bringing a civil or whether he successfully brings a civil claim is another matter. Legal experts suggest that suing the police for malicious prosecution is very difficult. It requires proof of malice. In many cases, it also requires proof of, that the police willfully fabricated or suppressed evidence.
2: And it's quite hard to prove malice, I guess. Is that, where it, is that the crux of the issue there?
6: I think it's it's difficult to prove malice on the part of the police as opposed to negligence, and you can't see the police for negligence in this matter. So if they were negligent, if they just failed to investigate properly, that wouldn't be sufficient to get over the hurdle for malicious prosecution. The Criminal
2: Cases Review Commission, that's the body that if you're a prisoner, if you're in jail and you think I've been wrongly convicted here, you go to that body and you say, can you look at my case? And if they think that you might have a point um, in layman's terms, they're can they the only body that can take that to the Court of Appeal. In Andrew Malkinson's case, twice he went to the CCRC, that's the acronym for them, and it was only the third time of asking this most recent one where they did in fact say, yes, we think you have a case, it goes to the Court of Appeal, and it is indeed quashed.
6: They haven't apologised to Andrew for that. Do you think they should? They would be well advised to do so, I should think, in terms of PR. They may take a different view, but it doesn't strike me as though they have anything to lose by apologizing to him, and it would be the decent thing to do. The the CCRC will say that they are bound by strict rules on how they proceed, and they will also argue vociferously that they have been underfunded over the last 15 or so years, and that that is a problem in their in the in the throughput of their cases uh however i think a lot of people will say or certainly a lot of lawyers in this field will say that they had the forensic evidence in front of them some time ago and still failed to put it before the court of appeal in a timely manner do you think the ccrc is fit for purpose at the moment i think a lot of people think it's not fit for purpose and the issues around it go back or certainly were highlighted in 2021 when the the Westminster Commission on Miscarriages of Justice issued an absolutely brutal report on the commission's performance. People will say that the police failed in its investigation. But I think from a legal point of view, the most significant failing is the failure by the CCRC to put before the Court of Appeal the very, very significant forensic evidence that has clearly cleared Malkinson.
2: I asked the Criminal Cases Review Commission why they had not apologised to Andy Malkinson. They told me they recognised he had a very long journey to clear his name, but sadly the evidence that led to our referral only became available years after his conviction. They also said as part of a statement that in the last three years, more than 100 people's convictions or sentences have been overturned following CCRC referrals. Sitting here now, free man, innocent yes. man, yep. two different things, mm. very important for you obviously the second, yeah. and for people that have followed your story and what's happened to you. Is this the end now for you or is this a
3: new beginning? How do you see it? Uh, it's definitely not the end. You know, I've got a lot of work to do on myself. I think I've got undiagnosed mental health issues, pretty certain of that anyway.
2: And one person that we spoke with in the podcast series, she gave a statement yesterday, it was your mother, Tricia.
3: Oh, right, yeah. How's this whole ordeal been for her? Um, she suffered a lot. People talking behind her back, or even maybe not even behind her back. Pe- yeah. people can be malicious. Yeah, she suffered like, like you wouldn't believe. And how is she now? Uh, she's very happy, she was very emotional, lots of tears yesterday. She's delighted that the truth has been recognised.
2: What next for you now, now that your licence conditions have gone, you don't have to report into a probation officer,
3: you're yeah. allowed to go abroad? That's obviously great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it feels quite, quite a relief to have that off, off my shoulders, are
2: you going to go abroad? Is that is that next on your list?
3: Definitely, yeah, yeah. I'm going to Holland. I'm going to stay there as long as I can, uh, you know, fund it for. Do you know what? In an ideal world, yeah. If 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 I had the funding, I'd just spend the rest of my life travelling, spend a long time in a place I like, and move on a bit and just explore the world.
2: Everything that's happened to you.
3: Mm. What can we learn from that? We have to make our institutions accountable, properly accountable. We need to change a lot of things. There's more people innocent in prison than anyone is comfortably able to live with. It's due partly to mass incarceration. It's obvious, the bigger the sample size, you're going to have more innocent people, more and more and more. So prison should be really a literal last resort. And you have to have more open appeal systems, more accessible Access to justice. A real look and a reform of the criminal justice system. Yes, properly and not in favour of the authorities like it always is. In favour of citizens' rights. That's... I put it like that. So that's the Andrew Malkinson story. Yeah, yeah. We're all citizens. We're not prey. We're citizens and we have we have a right not to be abused like this.
2: Andrew Malkinson spent 17 years, 4 months and 16 days in prison. All that time, he was innocent. He was failed at every level by a system which should have protected him. While making this series, I've been struck by his dignity and quiet determination in his search for justice. He is now truly vindicated. At 57, he has to try and rebuild his life. I hope he can. You've been listening to 17 Years, the Andrew Malkinson story with me, Will Rowe. It's brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. The series and original journalism is by Emily Dugan and produced by me. Original music and sound design was by Tom Birchall. This episode was sound designed by David Crackles. The executive producers are Lynn Jones and Kate Ford. If you've been affected by any issues in this podcast, there are some helplines and websites you can access. Just go to the notes in the podcast description. And to listen to the full series, just search for 17 years, the Andrew Malkinson story, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, just to finish, I'd just say um, thank you very much for your time and all your time dealing with me making the podcast over the last couple of years and Emily Dugan. So, yeah. Yeah, thank- It's been a pleasure, Will. Thank, thank you very much. You. Yeah. Thank
3: you for the opportunity.
1: That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.